Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he, is, he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the book of Hebrews is a very unique book in the New Testament for at least two ways. Uh, for at least two reasons. The first is that the author of Hebrews is unknown. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And uh, there's been a number of speculations as to who wrote Hebrews. Uh, One of the earliest views was that the author was the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 letters that we find in the New Testament. But uh, that seems to me to be unlikely. Uh, uh, The the author doesn't formally introduce himself like, uh, like the Apostle Paul does in his letters. Um, And there's also some stylistic differences between Paul's letters and the book of Hebrews. So there's been some other suggestions as to who wrote the book of Hebrews. Perhaps uh, Apollos wrote it, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul. That's the view that Martin Luther took, for example. Uh, There's been uh, speculation that perhaps uh, Luke or Barnabas or Silas or some other traveling companion of the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, The view that I lean towards personally is uh, that the author may well be Clement of Rome, who wrote a letter to the Corinthian Christians towards the end of the first century. There's various uh, stylistic parallels between his letter and the book of Hebrews. Highly recommend uh, his letter to the Corinthian Christians at the end of the first century, by the way. But all that to say, we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And so you might hear me say, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, and that's the reason why. The second reason that the book is unique is that, and scholars have recognized for a long time, that it reads more like a homily or a sermon than it does an epistle. Now, who are the, who are the primary audience of this homily, this sermon to the Hebrews? Well, the primary audience are immature Jewish believers who are tempted to cling on to the symbolic and spiritually powerless rituals and traditions of Judaism. They were, at the time of, uh, the, of the writing, uh, undergoing some sort of persecution, and there was a temptation to return to their former rituals and ceremonies and um, religious traditions of Judaism. And so a major theme throughout the book of Hebrews is endurance in the Christian life, perseverance in the faith. And this comes up over and over again in the book of Hebrews. So, um, as I said, they were evidently facing some sort of persecution, and it was causing some to reconsider their commitment to Christ. Some were ready to throw in the towel on Christ and to return to their former lives in Judaism. And so if I was to sum up the primary message of the book of Hebrews in three words, it would be this. Christ is better. Christ is better. Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than the Levitical priests. Christ, the, the, the covenant that Christ mediates is better than the old covenant. 
And this is the message that I want to communicate this morning. Christ is better. Whatever temptation you're struggling with, Christ is better than that temptation. Whether you struggle with alcohol or or pornography or gambling or whatever it happens to be, Christ is better. And if I can just give you a glimpse of the excellences, the beauty, the majesty, the worthiness, the value of Christ this morning, then I will have accomplished my task. Now notice that the writer does not waste any time getting to the point. He launches right in. He starts off with the word God in verse 1, and he quickly focuses on the Son in verse 2. So he begins, Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. God speaks. If God did not speak, we would know nothing of God. But God has spoken to us through his word, through the scriptures, through the prophets, through the apostles who wrote and put together the Bible. And God speaks to us today if we um, want wisdom about what, what is God's will for our lives. How often do we study the scriptures? Yes, the scriptures don't tell us explicitly you know, what job or career path God wants you to pursue, who he wants you to marry, but by studying the scriptures, you can attune your mind with the will of God and thus have wisdom that is in alignment with God's will and God's desires for you. So God speaks to us through his word. And throughout the Hebrew Bible, collection of documents spanning some 1,500 years, God has spoken uh, to the, the Jewish people through various prophets. And of course, uh, the qualification for being a prophet in Deuteronomy 18 is you had to have a perfect track record of accurate forecasting of the future. If you got it wrong one time, then the the penalty was death. So there's a very strict penalty for being a false prophet. And so the the Christian faith, right from the get-go, has always been an evidence-based faith. That God has not called us to a faith that is blind, that is devoid of rational and reasonable justification. Rather, he's given us evidences, public evidences, that are accessible to Anyone, and he did that through the prophets who would predict the future. Uh, often, uh, most often you see short-range predictions that would be fulfilled during the lifetime of the, of the original audience, and that was to confirm and vindicate, authenticate their prophetic credentials. Uh, Jesus himself, of course, performed miracles to authenticate his credentials, most notably the resurrection from the dead. The apostles performed miracles we read in the book of Acts um, and in Paul's letters. And the prophets spoke about various things, but one silver thread that unites the prophet's message was the coming of Israel's Messiah. Throughout the prophets, we see various predictions concerning this deliverer, this redeemer, this um, Messiah, this servant who would occupy the offices of prophet, priest, and king, and would accomplish spiritual redemption for his people. The, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures are literally a goldmine of prophecies concerning Christ 
and his attributes and his mission. Let me just give you, in brief, one example from the Old Testament. This is from Isaiah 53, one of the best-known chapters in the book of Isaiah. This is written some 700 years prior to the advent of Christ. It says, Behold, this is starting from 52.13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it continues. I highly commend to your reading the rest of the chapter of Isaiah 53 if you haven't done so before. It's a remarkable prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And it's, it's written some 700 years before the coming of Christ. And the author of the Hebrews continues, he says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So he spoke in the past in verse one, and he still speaks today in verse two. You might say it's a bit like junior school, right? Your teacher didn't start um, in junior school by teaching you calculus or quantum mechanics or, um, or, or um, about thermodynamics. No, we, start, we started off on the elementary principles of math and, and, and so forth. And so likewise, with God's dealings with his people, in verse 2, you no longer need the various ways, etc., such as the, the, the tabernacle and the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, etc., because everything God wants to say is expressed in his Son. And I want you to realize that Christ didn't just deliver the message from God. No, Christ is the message from God. The first great contrast in the book of Hebrews is that Christ is better than the prophets of old. There was a second century church father by the name of Mathetus, who was, uh, which in Greek means stu uh, disciple or student. And he was uh, writing to a pagan by the name of Diognetus. And he says, and he, was, uh, he says he was a, a pupil of the apostles at one point. And he says, for as I said before, it is not, not an earthly discovery that has been entrusted to the Christians. The thing they guard so jealously is no product of mortal thinking. And what has been committed to them is the stewardship of no human mysteries. The Almighty himself, the creator of the universe, the God whom no eye can discern, has sent down his very own truth from heaven, his own holy and incomprehensible word, to plant it among men and to ground it in their hearts. To this end he has not, as one might imagine, sent to mankind some servant of his, some angel or prince, 
It is none of the great ones of the earth, nor even one of the vice regents of heaven. It is no other than the universal artificer and constructor himself, by whose agency God made the heavens and set the seas their bounds, whose mystic word the elements of creation submissively obey, by whom the sun is assigned the limits of his course by day, and at whose command by night the obedient moon unveils her beams, and each compliant star follows circling in her train. Ordainer, disposer, and ruler of all things is he, of heaven and all that heaven holds, of earth and all that is in earth, of sea and every creature therein, of fires, air, and the abyss, of things above and things below and things in the midst. Such was the messenger God sent to men. And so Christ, God has not sent us just some prophet or some, some, the, one of the vice regents of heaven. He has sent us none other than the one by whom he created the universe, the one by whom he flung the stars into space, the one who created the incredible biology we see in the cell and the incredible design of the universe. He continues, he says, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now notice that he goes on to give this um, long um, listing of attributes of Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. One of the most difficult things that we ever have to do is to preach about Christ, because no matter how hard you try, you cannot express the excellences, the value of Christ. It can't, there's, there's just, words cannot do justice to it in the English language. And no matter how many years you've been walking with the Lord, 10 years, 20 years, or more, I can say with absolute confidence that there are things about Jesus that you have yet to learn. There is more to who Jesus is and what he's done for you than you've ever yet realized. And there's so much more about Jesus for you to discover. So the author says, he, he appointed the heir of all things. Now, this is not just a New Testament idea. This is also an Old Testament idea about the, the person of Christ. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Notice of the son of man here, it uses the very same language that had been applied in the previous chapter in Daniel 6 verse 26, to the God of Daniel by King Darius after Daniel is delivered from the lion's den. Where King Darius says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. Christ is described elsewhere as the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.15 uh, also in verse 6 of this same chapter, Hebrews 1. Now you might, uh, if you ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness, you might hear that this uh, indicates that 
Christ as a created being, right? He's the firstborn of all creation. But I don't think that that's what's being expressed. It doesn't entail that Christ is himself a created being, because that would contradict the uniform teaching of Scripture, both the Old and New Testament. Rather, it denotes that Christ has the inheritance rights of the firstborn. It's a, it's a, it's a title of rank. For example, in Psalm 89, verse 27, it speaks of King David saying, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So it wasn't that David was the first king. It's, no, he's the, he's, he's, as to his rank, he's the firstborn. And likewise with Christ. So the author continues, Through him also he created the world. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes in verses 15 through 17, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Think about the vastness of the universe. Think about our Earth. What distance is the Earth from the Sun? It's about 93 million miles. To the next nearest star, which is Alpha Centauri, you're talking about 26 trillion miles. And there's about 200 billion stars in our galaxy, and about 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. All of that was created by Christ. We see incredible evidence of, of design and the nanotechnology that governs the, the cell, the, the information processing, storage, and retrieval apparatus in the cell points very forcefully to the conclusion of design. And this is actually another apologetic that the scripture gives us that God has not left himself without a witness. We talked before about the witness of prophecy and miracles to people's uh, prophetic or apostolic or messianic credentials. Uh, we also have the evidence from the natural sciences that points to design, and that is the evidence of God's fingerprints in nature. So Paul says that God's attributes, his divine power, eternal nature, are being clearly perceived so that men are anapologetus, without an apologetic, without an excuse, because of the evidence revealed in nature of a creator. The author continues, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now the sun is, is made of hydrogen and, and helium, and we've never actually seen the sun. We've seen the light that radiates the, the, the um, we've seen the light that radiates uh, from, the, from the sun, the visual, the, um, visual light. And likewise, we have never seen God. That's what John 1:18 says. No one has ever seen God. But the monogamous theos, God the one and only, who is ever at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has exegeted him. He has explained him to us. The Son is the perfect expression of who God is. If you recall back in the book of Exodus in chapter 3, Moses has been commissioned to go and rescue his people from the land of Egypt. And he says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, God can't compare himself 
to anything in creation. You can't point to this or that person and say, I'm like that. Because he's not like that. He is unique. He is completely separate from all things that are created. But 2,000 years ago, in the person of a carpenter born in an obscure village in Galilee, God pointed to a man and said, if you want to know what I'm like, look to this man. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this paradox that is spelled out for us. Versus the, the seen versus the unseen Yahweh. So there's this verse in Exodus 33, verse 20, where Moses is told, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so Moses is not permitted to see the, the full radiance of God's face. And yet, in other passages in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see that people do apparently see God. Genesis 32, 30, after Jacob is wrestled with, with God. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Judges 6, 22 and 23, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, He's a divine figure in the Old Testament. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Judges 13, 21 and 22, after uh, the angel of the Lord has announced the birth of Samson to Manoah and his wife, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Isaiah 6, verse 5, Isaiah, in his temple vision, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he falls to his knees, saying, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So how then is this paradox to be resolved? Can people see God or not? Well, the New Testament, the New Testament gives us our answer. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, Christ is a perfect expression of God's nature in human flesh. Matthew 11.27 and Luke 10.22, likewise, say all things, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I love the way Clement of Rome puts it. To Christ, we look up to the highest heaven and see as in a glass the peerless perfection of the face of God. Through Christ, the eyes of our hearts are opened and our dim and clouded understanding unfolds like a flower to the light. For through Christ, the Lord permits us to taste the wisdom of eternity. The author of Hebrews continues. He says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There was a second century letter by a Christian by the name of Theophilus of Antioch. He was writing to a pagan by the name of Autolycus. And he says, this is my God, the Lord of all who alone stretched out the heaven and established the breadth of the earth under it, who stirs the deep recesses of the sea and makes its waves roar, who rules its power and stills the tumult of its waves, who founded the earth upon the waters and gave a spirit to nourish it, whose breath giveth light to the whole, who, if he withdrew his breath, the whole will utterly fail. By him 
you speak, O man. His breath you breathe, yet him you know not. God is the sustainer of all things. Every breath that you take comes from his hand. Every heartbeat comes from him, and you owe him. And if Jesus is the sustainer of the entire universe, then he can sustain you right now. Whatever circumstances you're going through, whether that be illness or bereavement or disappointment, Christ can sustain you as he sustains the universe. The author continues, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There was one piece of furniture that was conspicuously missing in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. The chair. There was no chair in the Holy of Holies. Why? The high priest's work was never finished. He never got to sit down. Um, and so, but Christ, likewise, but Christ, by contrast, his work was completed, and so he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins, his work was completed. No more would sacrifices need to be made year after year. Christ has offered the once-for-all perfect sacrifice. There is this, there's uh, imagery in the Old Testament of a cup of divine fury in Psalm 75, for example, um, that God gives to the nations, and they drink it, and they stagger, and they die. as God's judgment upon them. But when Christ, at, on the cross, cried out, it is accomplished, tetelestai, it is accomplished, it is finished, it is as though he turned over that cup of divine fury, and not one drop fell out, for he consumed it right down to the very last drop. And Christ sits as our high priest, as our mediator between man and God. Moses, of course, wasn't able to serve as high priest because he lived his life in, in the palace. Aaron is selected to be high priest because he had grown up as a slave. And so Christ, in order to be our high priest, not only needed to be fully God, he also had to be fully man in order to know at an experiential level what it is that we go through. And so because Christ is our qualified high priest. He can be our perfect mediator and he can represent our needs before the Father. Christ understands and he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and in our sufferings. Okay, finally, the author says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the second great comparison in Hebrews. Christ is superior not just to the prophets that came before him, but also to the angelic creatures. And this is the theme of the remainder of the chapter, chapter one. So in conclusion then, um, I'll note in, in conclusion this, this uh, story from the Argonautica by Apollonius Rhodius, where there was, and this is in Greek mythology, there were some sailors that were sailing past an island that had sirens on the island. Sirens are these Greek mythological creatures, these uh, maidens that sing this enchanting music, hypnotic, uh, chant, and it entices the sailors to throw themselves into the ocean and swim to the shore, and they get eaten by the sirens. And uh, uh, the, uh, there was a guy on this, on this boat called Orpheus, and he saved the lives that day of the sailors by pulling out his violin and playing a more melodious song than, that, than the music of the sirens. 
And so likewise, we should be so saturated with the excellences, the beauties, the worthiness of Christ that it drowns out the allure of our temptations. Now, perhaps we were looking this morning for something a bit more practical. Perhaps you think it's been a bit too theological. Perhaps you have problems with your marriage. You want to know how to be a better husband or you're having difficulties with your job or what have you. But the most practical thing that you can do in the midst of those challenges in your lives is, in the words of Hebrews 12, verse 2, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of, your, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much, Jonathan. As we fix our eyes on Christ, he gives us one way to remember what he's done for us. And that's through a sacred communion meal that we participate in every week here. And as we take the bread and as we take the cup, we're reminded that Christ's body was broken for us in a physical, tangible kind of way. And we're reminded that Christ's blood was spilled for us. And it's a way for us to fix our eyes back on how he is more excellent, how he is better, and how he loves us so dearly that he gave up his life for us. Fathers, we come to your table now as we're preparing our hearts uh, to, to share this meal, as we're being reminded of your son's death on our behalf, how his body was broken and his blood was shed on account of our sin, that he died for us, and that he was resurrected for us so that we might have life in him. God, we pray that our hearts would be passionately on fire with uh, joy and satisfaction in the completed work of Christ. We pray that we'll be able to see him as better than all things, that so we'll set our mind on things above so that our earthly struggles will grow strangely dim and that we'll be able to glory in Christ. And so, guys, we enjoy this meal. Help us to set our hope and our heart on you. In Christ's name, amen.